Peace be upon you. So glaring question that any sensible person who studies the history of Islam must ask themselves is how did the religion get taken over by the most ardent enemies of the Prophet shortly after his death in 632? This was done by the vicious idol-worshipping Quraysh who fought the Prophet up until the moment they were conquered in 630. Then, within a single generation, this group caused multiple civil wars, fabricated hadith to garner support, and eventually took over the caliphate and changed the entire direction of Islam. To understand this transition and how this took place, we need to provide some context. After a prophet died, the next khalifa was selected by committee, which selected Abu Bakr as the first khalifa. This continued for the nominations of Umar and Uthman, but after the assassination of Uthman and the nomination of Ali, the Caliphate transitioned through force from being selected by committee into being a dynasty dominated by the clan of the Umayyad of the Quraysh tribe. These were many of the same pagan Quraysh who fought against the Prophet and the believers, killing many of them, maining them, Yet, we are to believe these same opponents sincerely accepted Islam immediately after the conquest of Mecca by Muhammad and the believers in 630. For instance, the leader of the Quraysh was an individual by the name of Abu Safayan. He was the head of the Umayyad clan during the life of the Prophet and the nephew of Abi Lahab, who was condemned in the Quran. We read in Surah 111, it says, In the name of God, most gracious, most merciful, condemned are the works of Abi Lahab, and he is condemned. His money and whatever he has accomplished will never help him. He has incurred the blazing hell. Also, his wife who led the persecution, she will be resurrected with a rope of thorns around her neck. It's not that Abu Safayn is dismissed strictly because of this family relation, but it was because he was the chief orchestrator fighting Muhammad and the believers at the Battle of Badr. And this took place in 624. During this battle, he lost one son, and then he lost one of his father-in-laws, while another son was taken captive. So you can imagine the resentment he had. Then the following year, Abu Safayn inflicted significant losses on the Muslims at the Battle of Ud in 625. After that battle, the wife of Abu Safayn, along with other women, mutilated the bodies of Muslims, making their appendages into necklaces. It was also understood that the wife of Abu Sufyan cut out and ate the liver of Muhammad's uncle Hamza as revenge for her father's death at the Battle of Bad. So these are another level of evil and despicableness. Then, after Mecca was conquered by the believers, Abu Sufyan, his wife, and even their son, Mawiyah, finally accepted Islam. It doesn't make sense to think that these people who fought their entire lives against the believers, against the religion, all of a sudden when they were overpowered, came to their senses and said, you know what, this makes a lot of sense. So how did they go from being the most vicious, vile, ardent opponents of the religion to all of a sudden ruling the entire Muslim ummah? To understand this shift in power, we need to understand the conflicts that arose that led to this. And this starts from the first fitna, the first civil war that took place among the Muslim communities. This first fitna was triggered over the assassination of the third Khalifa, Uthman. Uthman was part of the Umayyad tribe, but was one of the earliest believers of the faith. 
From history, it's understood that most Muslims at that time, including some of the closest companions of the Prophet, were not happy with his rules. These complaints predominantly stem from two accusations. The first accusation was that of nepotism. During his reign, Uthman had a number of his family members from the Umayyad clan as governors from the various provinces that were under Muslim control. The typical rebuttal that you'll hear from apologists regarding this claim is that they say that, well, look, some of these nominations took place before Uthman became Khalifa, which is a legitimate criticism. But nevertheless, the fact that he had these people in these positions of power did not bode well with his constituency. The second complaint against him was that he was using the public treasury inappropriately, giving payouts and sweetheart deals to his friends and family. People who defend Uthman regarding this say that he was Khalifa and he could rule the treasury however he pleased. During the reign of Uthman, two notable characters that we should be familiar with were one, the son of Abu Safayan, Mawiyah, who became the governor of Syria and eventually the first Khalifa of the Umayyad dynasty after Uthman, and his cousin Marwan, who was the scribe of Uthman and later became the fourth Umayyad Khalifa. As we will see, Mawiyah and Marwan play a major role in much of the bloodshed, the fabricated Hadith, and the civil wars in early Islam before they both became Khalifa and took over the Muslim Ummah. So again, Uthman had two claims against him. The first, that of nepotism, and the other one was the misuse of public funds. Now, I don't want to make a declaration that he was right or wrong, that he was guilty of this, but nevertheless, the people at that time had these grievances. So one example of how people were distrusting of how Uthman was using the public funds was after the Battle of Sabatula that took place in 647. This battle apparently generated many spoils of war for the believers. The spoils were to be divided so that one-fifth would go back to the state treasury. Yet Uthman unilaterally awarded his general for that battle one-fifth of the war booty from the state's share. Additionally, Marwan, who was responsible for transporting the remaining state's share to Uthman, convinced him to pay him 500,000 dinars in exchange for the state's share. Uthman apparently paid this out of his own pocket, but one can see how people would be up in arms with Marwan being able to extort money from Uthman for what did not belong to him because this was supposed to go back to the people. In contrast, during the Prophet's time, there was no public treasury. Whatever revenues or other amounts were received were distributed immediately to the people. There were no salaries to be paid. There was no state expenditures. Hence, the need for a treasury at the public level was not felt. This was also case during the reign of Abu Bakr. Abu Bakr earmarked a house where all money was kept on receipt. As all money was distributed, immediately the treasury generally remained locked up. At the time of death of Abu Bakr, it was claimed that there was only one dirham in the public treasury. It wasn't until the rule of Omar in 634 through 644 that the central treasury of Medina was established with a designated treasury officer. Omar was depicted as being very strict on government use of treasury. 
Omar used the government treasury predominantly for the welfare of the people as well as public works projects and to pay government workers, soldiers, children, and the closest companions of the Prophet a pre-designated stipend. Umar also forbid government officials from receiving gifts, which he viewed as a form of bribery. Additionally, there was much debate regarding the ownership of conquered land. Umar was against distributing the land among soldiers as war booty, and instead was of the opinion that the land should stay with the previous owners and that any uninhabited land obtained would be the property of the state. Umar also had restrictions on the purchase of agricultural lands in conquered territories by the Arabs because he feared that this could cause the conquered people to be subjugated by the Arabs. Many of these precedents changed under the reign of Uthman. Uthman allowed himself, his family, and officials from being able to accept all kinds of gifts. Uthman lifted the restriction against Arabs purchasing agricultural land from their conquest, which led to the people who were conquered being exiled from their own lands. It was alleged that Uthman saw no issue with using the public treasury however he decided as there was no stipulation barring him otherwise. So Uthman made liberal grants from public treasury to his inner circle of family and friends. It was documented that the individual who was in charge of the treasury at Medina resigned from his office in protest against Uthman's policies and his utilization of public funds. This dissatisfaction wasn't a minority opinion among Muslims. Many of the closest companions of the Prophet objected to Uthman's decisions and his conduct. This includes some notable figures that we're going to talk about later, which is Ali, Talaha, Zubair, and the wife of the Prophet Aisha. Some went so far as calling for Uthman to step down because of his dealings and wasteful spending from the government treasury. The biggest discontent came from the people of Cairo, where an attempt was made to overthrow the existing governor appointed by Uthman, who happened to also be his adopted brother. For background, this individual was one of the enemy combatants among the Umayyad that fought the Prophet until Mecca was conquered in 630. According to the historian Ibn Ashar, in his book, The Life of Muhammad, the Prophet was hoping that Abdullah ibn Sa'd, this individual who's the governor of Egypt at the time, would have been killed during the conquest after his capture, but because Uthman pleaded for his life, he was spared. Uthman consulted his cousins, Mawiyah, the governor of Syria at the time, and his other cousin, Marwan, regarding the civil unrest in Egypt, as well as in Basra and Kufa. Both Mawiyah and Marwan were of the opinion that Uthman should deal harshly with the instigators, calling for them to be killed or imprisoned. Uthman disagreed with such actions and wanted to work with Ibn Sa'd on a solution. They attempted to pay a stipend to quell the unrest, but the people in Cairo took this as an attempt of bribery. The people in Cairo finally had enough and decided to descend upon Medina to demand that Uthman step down. So under the guise of traveling for Hajj pilgrimage, a group of some 700 individuals from Cairo and another 300 from Basra and Kufa came to Uthman's compound in Medina to protest. 
the head of the protesters was Muhammad ibn Abi Bakr. This was the son of Abu Bakr, the half-brother of Aisha and the stepson of Ali. Their demand was to have Uthman step down. The people who came from Egypt wanted Ali to replace Uthman as Khalifa, while the representatives of Kufa wanted Zubair as Khalifa, and those from Basra wanted Talaha, but all three turned down the request. Uthman settled with the protesters that while he would not step down, he would agree to replace the current ruler in Egypt from his adopted brother to his adopted son. The protesters, not fully content with this agreement, realized that they were running out of time as they feared as the people returned from Hajj, they would uh, face more opposition. So they reluctantly agreed to the terms and decided to head back to their homes. As the thousand people were heading back, they noticed that there was a messenger traveling, moving very fast by horse, and they got suspicious. So they stopped the individual, and they realized that it was the slave of Uthman, riding on the horse of Uthman. And when they interrogated him, they found a letter with the seal of Uthman. And when they opened the letter, they saw that it was a message to the governor of Egypt telling the governor to kill all the protesters when they return. And this includes the son of Abu Bakr, Muhammad, and then if anyone objects, to imprison them. This obviously outraged the people because they thought they came to some agreement, some semblance with Uthman. So they return back to Medina with letter in their hand and they go to all the companions, all the people in Medina and they showed what Uthman was up to. When Uthman was confronted regarding this letter, they asked him, they said, is this your slave? He said, yes. He says, is this your horse? He said, yes. He says, is this your seal on this letter? He said, yes. They said, did you command the writing or write this letter? He said, no, I did not write this letter. I did not command it to be delivered. So upon analysis, what they realized was the handwriting matched that of Marwan. And now people wanted the blood of Marwan. But Uthman refused to turn him over. So Uthman, to avoid the fury of the protesters, locks himself inside his compound. And the protesters, they surround the compound and refuse any transportation of water to receive within the compound, hoping to, in essence, starve them to come out. And Uthman attempts to plead with the people. And the companions of the Prophet see this unrest. So apparently they dispatch their children, their, their boys, to go and defend Uthman to make things civil. And eventually some arrows are shot and some blood gets on the sons of the companions, including Hassan and Hussein, who are the sons of Ali. And the protesters are, get panicked. They think that if they see that these individuals have drawn blood, if they had blood on them, that it's going to shift the sentiment that they have from the masses. So Muhammad ibn Abi Bakr, again, the son of Abu Bakr, grabs two of the protesters and they make a plan. They say, look, let's get on the roof. We're going to sneak in and we're just going to assassinate Uthman and be done with it, you know, before people get more uh, uh, unruly. So they do that. They get on the roof, they go inside and they find Uthman apparently reading a Quran and Muhammad ibn Abi Bakr grabs Uthman by the beard, ready to, in essence, uh, slay him. And Uthman apparently says something in the line of, what would your father say if he saw you now? And the wife of Uthman 
sees this this commotion she jumps in front of Uthman trying to in essence uh protect him and the two other assassins come out slice off her fingers and slay Uthman so you see how among the companions themselves they're killing each other they're slaying each other they're fighting each other and this is what led to the first civil war so after the passing of Uthman the people agreed to make Ali the next Khalifa when Aisha, the widow of Muhammad, got word that Ali was nominated as Khalifa, this caused her great anger because historically she was not a fan of Ali. They had some bad blood between them. And in retaliation, she, along with Zubair and Talaha, wage a campaign against Ali. And in 656, they gather an army to confront the supporters of Ali in Basra where many of the inhabitants were in favor of Tala being Khalifa. Many Muslims were killed during this raid. So Ali gathers troops from Cairo and Kufa and marches to Basra to confront the army of Aisha, Zubair, and Tala. When Ali arrived in Basra, the two parties attempted to negotiate. Aisha's party demanded the removal of Ali from office and a council to elect his successor with the hope that the Khalifa would go to either Zubair or Talaha. Ali refused these terms, and after three days of failed negotiations, the two sides went to war in what was known as the Battle of the Camel. The battle does not end well for the party of Aisha, who suffered bitter defeat that caused the death of both Zubair and Talaha, as well as her camel. After the battle, Aisha was spared and escorted back to her home. It's not clear exactly how many died, but it's estimated to be about 3,000 believers were killed during this uprising. Now consider this, you know, the, the wife of the prophet, in opposition to the Khalifa nominated, goes and campaigns a war against them, causing the death of 3,000 people. And these are all supposedly believers. You know, as we'll see, this is considered to be the best generation. But it gets worse. After that, Mawiyah, the governor of Syria, the, the cousin of Uthman, and the son of Abu Sufayan, also wanted to depose Ali and take the reign of Khalifa. So he challenged Ali and his army in the Battle of Safin in 657. This battle apparently caused the death of 25,000 supporters of Ali and 45,000 supporters of Mawiyah. These are believers killing believers. Mawiyah realized that he was not going to win the battle. So he had his men put verses of the Quran on their swords and called for a truce. Ali allows Mawiyah to retain his governorship of Syria with the contingency that he does not challenge his status as Khalifa. Mawiyah never officially agrees to Ali as Khalifa, but nevertheless he stops fighting him and he kind of just resides within Syria. Now, one of the strongest supporters of Ali as Khalifa was a group known as the Kharijites. This was a group that resided predominantly in Basra and Kufa. They were severely disgruntled that Ali was not harsher with Aisha and with Mawiyah and decided to turn on Ali. They attempted to wage a war on Ali in the Battle of Narwan in 658 but were crushed so a group of them devised a plan to assassinate Ali, Mawiyah, and Mawiyah's representative during their negotiations. As fate had it, Mawiyah and his chief negotiator were able to foil the plans of the assassin 
and their lives were spared. But this wasn't the case for Ali, who was killed in 661 by the Kharajite assassin. With Ali out of the picture, Mawiyah declared himself Khalifa of the Muslim Ummah. This outraged Ali's oldest son Hassan, who formed an army to go and fight Mawiyah. Except with this fracturing that was caused by the Kharijites, he did not possess much of a threat to Mawiyah. Mawiyah, knowing that the love that the people had towards Hassan did not want to turn him into a martyr, and made a truth with Hassan telling him that he will pay him a fixed stipend, you know, take care of him and his family, with the promise that after he passes, that he will make him the next Khalifa. And this leads us to the second fitna, the second civil war among the Muslims. So the second fitna was triggered after the death of Mawiyah. So Mawiyah apparently made this deal with Hassan, said, hey, look, after I die, you can become the, my successor, the next Khalifa. And he had no plans of fulfilling this promise. He wanted his son, Yazid, to be his successor. So he concocted a plan to kill Hassan, but do it in a way where, again, it couldn't be traced directly back to him. And he had Hassan poisoned. And the way he went about doing this, according to the historian Suyuti, is that he had his son, Yazid, make a proposal to the wife of Hassan and told her that, look, if you poison Hassan, I will make you my wife. And then when I become Khalifa, you can be the wife of the Khalifa. And apparently she took up his offer and poisoned Hassan. And then when she went back to Yazid to tell her that she accomplished the task, Yazid denounces her and her actions and says that he never basically put her up to doing this. Then, in 676, Mawiyah, before he passes, appoints Yazid to be the next Khalifa before his death in 680. And this is the paradigm shift. The Muslim Caliphate went from being selected by committee to being a dynasty where the individual is just going to pass it on to their child. Needless to say, this upset many individuals, including... Hassan's younger brother Hussein, who refused to pay allegiance to Yazid. So Hussein attempts to form an army. He goes between Cairo and Kufa and Basra, where he had the greatest support. And during this process, he's in a group of about 70 men, including his entire family. And they get stopped in Karbala by an army 1,000 strong sent by Yazid. And in short, the entire Hussein and all his family, all his uh, uh, individuals that were with him were all slaughtered in 680. So now that opposition from the family of Ali is pretty much gone. But there was also another group that objected to the way that the succession was conducted. And this was a group out of Mecca and Medina and was led by the son of Zubair who, if you recall, was killed at the Battle of the Camel, who had opposition to Ali becoming Khalifa. Ibn Zubair wanted the selection process for the Khalifa to be done by committee, and he refused to accept allegiance to Yazid because of the way that the succession was conducted. So Yazid sent an army to suppress their rebellion. The army of Yazid gained victory over Medina, after the Battle of Hara in 683, and they ransacked the city. 
The number of Medinan casualties incurred during the battle and immediately afterward ranged between 180 to 700 members of the Ansar and the Quraysh and 4,000 to 10,000 other inhabitants of Medina. Afterward, Mecca was besieged for several weeks, causing the Kaaba itself to be damaged, and this was known as the first siege of Mecca. The siege ended and the Syrian army withdrew in November 683 when it was announced abruptly that Yazid had died. Historically, it's not clear exactly how he died, but it's kind of interesting, the timely nature. I mean, this was a relatively young individual. He only reigned for a few years, and then he, he died shortly after these atrocious actions that he conducted. And after his death, two things happened. So one was uh, Ibn Zubair declares himself Khalifa formally. And secondly is he nominates his son. So Yazid nominates his son, Mawiyah II, as Khalifa. But this <laughs> Mawiyah II only reigned for a couple months before dying of some strange illness in 684. So who is there from the Umayyad who can, in essence, remedy this situation? No other than Marwan, the very individual who you could attribute to causing all this death and bloodshed and civil wars. So Marwan took control and nominated himself as Khalifa after the death of Mawayyad II. Marwan went on the offensive to regain Umayyad control over the various regions who were swearing allegiance to Ibn Zubair. So he was able to make some inroads and regain some of these territories that they were losing. But interestingly enough, his reign didn't even last a year before he died. And before his death, he appointed his son, Abdul Malik, to take the reins of Khalifa. When Abdul Malik became Khalifa, he focused his energy first on securing his support within Syria because it was fading. So one of the first things he did is he barred any of the individuals living in Syria under his rule from performing Hajj. He was afraid that if they went to Hajj and mingled with the supporters of Zubair, that he would lose their support. This paranoia wasn't unwarranted, as Abdul Malik also had to quash a coup attempt in Damascus by his kinsmen. After he felt like he secured the situation in Syria, he started making deals, and these are some unfavorable truths, in order to reduce the pressure he was having from the other regions. And once that was established, then he went on a mission to reclaim Mecca and Medina. Abdul Malik's army was led by Al-Hajjaj. He was a ruthless general, but apparently very effective. From history, it does not seem like Al-Hajjaj had much combative resistance from the people in Medina. So he was able to oppress and humiliate its people, including a number of remnants of the companions of the Prophet who he maimed and killed himself. Afterward, he encamped for several months in Taif, east of Mecca, and fought numerous skirmishes in Arafat. In March 692, his forces besieged Mecca, and for six months they cut off all supplies to Mecca in an attempt to starve its people. Additionally, they were shooting catapults, killing the inhabitants who refused to deflect from Ibn Zubair. It is recorded that some stones from the catapult damaged the Kaaba again for the second time. This event was known as the Second Siege of Mecca. Eventually, Al-Hajjaj stormed Mecca and slaughtered al-Zubair and his remaining supporters. Al-Hajjaj sent Zubair's head to Abdul Malik while his body was displayed 
for all the inhabitants of Mecca to see, and for all the pilgrims who come to Mecca for Hajj to realize that if you oppose the Khalifa, this is going to be your outcome. The historian Suyuti wrote in his book, History of the Khalifs, I remark if the crimes of Abdul Malik had been only the appointing of Al-Hajjaj over the Muslims and the companions, bringing them into content and degrading them by death, stripes, reproach, and imprisonment. And verily, he slew of the companions and the greatest of the tabi'in, the followers, what is beyond count, to say nothing of others beside them, and struck the necks of Anas and others of the companions with a strike, intending thereby their humiliation. Then, for these alone, may God not have mercy upon him, nor pardon him. And this brought an end to the second civil war, the second fitna. And unfortunately, this trend did not end. There was additional civil wars that took place. And this history of ongoing civil wars between Muslims creates a real challenge to the traditionalists because they believe that the companions of the Prophet, the followers, were the best generation. But the Quran clearly states that anyone who kills a believer on purpose, that his retribution is hell. So in Surah 4 verse 93, it says, Anyone who kills a believer on purpose, his retribution is hell, wherein he abides forever. God is angry with him and condemns him, and he has prepared for him a terrible retribution. If someone kills a believer on purpose, not by accident, but intentionally as the aggressor, God is not short on words that their destiny is hell. So how does one account for the fact that, for instance, the son of Abu Bakr was the predominant instigator in the assassination of Uthman? How do you account for the wife of the prophet Aisha, along with Zubair and uh, Talaha, waging a war against Ali and his constituency, shedding the life of thousands of believers? How do they justify Mawiyah, the son of Abu Sufyan, again, one of the most ardent opponents of the believers, whose wife has done such foul acts that, God willing, she's never forgiven for what she's committed? How do they account for these people becoming in charge of the Caliphate and the Muslim Ummah, that they've transformed it, an act of succession based on voting by committee to becoming a dynasty? The way they go about trying to save face on this is they fabricate hadith. So they fabricate hadith as forms of political ad campaigns to show these people as being the most righteous. So for instance, in Sahih Bukhari 6429, it reads, The Prophet said, The best people are those of my generation, and those will come after them, and then those who will come after them. And then after them, there will come people whose witness will precede their oaths and whose oaths will precede their witness. So it's claiming that the best generation is the generation of the prophet, then the tabi'in, the followers, and then after that, the next generation. Except from what we've just seen, that these are some of the most heinous, vicious individuals who killed other believers in the name of God. And as we will see, fabricated hadith to convince Muslims that it's okay and it's advocated to kill other Muslims. In the Hadith literature, it gives these Hadith where it says that there are circumstances by which lying is permissible. And it gives three circumstances. It reads, to please one's wife, 
during war and to bring peace between the people. Now consider this, literally from the death of Uthman in 656 and for a hundred plus years afterwards, there was perpetual fighting, giving people clear coverage to fabricate lies and not feel any remorse because they believe that it's during war. And secondly, it says to bring peace between the people. So if you wanted to justify some lie because you thought that it's going to unite people, again, this is giving you clear coverage. So we see in Termidi, 1939, it reads, The Messenger of Allah said, It is not lawful to lie except in three cases. Something the man tells his wife to please her, to lie during war, and to lie in order to bring peace between the people. And in another Sahih Hadith from Termidi, in 1938, it reads, The Messenger of Allah said, One who brings peace between the people is not a liar. He says something good or reports something good. So meaning that if you could justify that, hey, this is to bring peace, then you're authorized to lie. So we can realize it doesn't take much of imagination to see how such reasoning can provide individuals with carte blanche cover to justify lying under the guise of unity. How many hadith have been fabricated by individuals who took it upon themselves to resolve a dispute by constructing a hadith to supposedly settle the argument? because they thought that this would bring peace among the people. But the other question is, how do you convince believers to kill other believers? I mean, that's a high bar in the Quran. Again, it's very clear. Anyone who kills a believer on purpose is destined for hell. Then how do you convince the masses to do this? And this requires more fabrication of hadith to convince people that this is actually righteous. And that's why you have a bunch of this fabricated hadith commanding individuals that if someone does not swear allegiance to the right khalifa or challenges their status, that is, is their duty to kill that individual and their supporters. This is how you convince the Muslim masses that it's righteous to kill other believers. In Surah 35 verse 8, it says, Note the one whose evil work is adorned in his eyes until he thinks that it is righteous. God thus sends astray whoever wills to go astray, and he guides whoever wills to be guided. Therefore do not grieve over them. God is fully aware of everything they do. For instance, in Sahih Bukhari 6830, I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's pretty long, there's a fabricated narration where Umar is discussing the selection process of Abu Bakr after the death of the Prophet, and that some of the Muhajirin were opposed to Abu Bakr's nomination and selected Sa'd bin Ubadah as their Khalifa. Hearing this, Umar and Abu Bakr went to the Muhajirin and sat them down, and Abu Bakr gave this fiery speech and convinced the people to support him, and they all unanimously agreed to support Abu Bakr and then put Sa'd bin Ubadah to death. So they're claiming that the Khalifa, the first Khalifa, Abu Bakr, did this very process, that after he won the support from the people, the individual who challenged his authority was put to death. And this was the seedlings for this understanding. And you'll see other hadith. So in, uh, and this isn't the only one. So for instance, in Sahih Muslim, 1852a, it reads, I have heard the Messenger of Allah say, different evils will make their appearance in the near future. 
anyone who tries to disrupt the affairs of this Ummah while they are united, you should strike him with the sword, whoever he be. And this is a euphemism for kill him. So anyone who causes strife within the Muslim Ummah, you have to kill them. And then you see in Muslim, uh, Sahih Muslim 1852c, it says uh, that the messenger, I heard the messenger of Allah say, when you're holding to one single man as your leader, you should kill who seeks to undermine your solidarity or disrupt your unity. And there's another narration that's worth discussing because it's very applicable to this entire history. And this is Sahih Muslim 1844. This was a narration that was narrated by Abdullah bin Amir bin Al-As, who supported Mawiyah during the first fitna against Ali. In this narration, he declares that the Prophet commanded that any claimant to the Khalifate after the people swear allegiance to one is to be killed. Then the narration discusses the people being upset with the ruling of Mawiyah, that they are being ordered to give up their wealth that is being uh, uh, consumed without their uh, consent, and that they are being ordered to kill one another. And the response from the narrator is that, again, this is coming by the command of the Prophet, is to obey him in obedience to God, and disobey him is disobedience to God. Now, you'll see some twisting of the Arabic as far as what's being stated here. But basically, it's commanding the people that they must obey him. That if they disobey him, it's disobedience to God. And I'm going to read these portions of the Hadith. So the narrator is saying that the Prophet said, He who swears allegiance to a Khalifa should give him the pledge of his hand and the sincerity of his heart. He should obey him to the best of his capacity. If another man comes forward as claimant to the Khalifate, disputing his authority, they, the Muslims, should behead the latter. How convenient that you have this hadith telling people that if someone is challenging the Khalifate, that they are to be killed, that this is what the Prophet recommended them to do, that doing such actions would be righteous. So it continues, the person narrating this hadith came to the one, the companion of the Prophet who made this testimony and said to him, can you say on the oath that you heard it from the Messenger of Allah? He pointed with his hands to his ears and his heart and said, my ears heard it and my mind retained it. I said to him, this cousin of yours, so now it's shifting, it's asking about his cousin, it says, this cousin of yours, Mawiyah, orders us to unjustly consume our wealth among ourselves and to kill one another. While Allah says, O you who believe, do not consume your wealth among yourselves unjustly, unless it is betrayed and based on mutual agreement, and do not kill yourselves. Verily, God is merciful to you. The narrator says that hearing this, uh, Al-As, the companion of the Prophet, kept quiet for a while and then said, Obey him in obedience of God and disobey him in disobedience of God. And again, it's, it's articulating by the authority of the Prophet that even though he's commanding them to do these heinous acts, that they have to obey him and that if you disobey him, you're actually disobeying God. And you can see how these hadith can sway people into being able to conduct such heinous acts. These hadith remind me of the following verse from the Quran in Surah 10, verse 60. It says, Does it ever occur to those who fabricate lies about God that they will have to face Him on the day of resurrection? Certainly, God showers the people with His grace, but most of them are unappreciative. 
In the Quran, it gives us a glimpse of what it's going to be like on the day of resurrection. People who followed this advice blindly in opposition to what's clearly stated in the Quran. In Surah 34, verse 31 through 33, it reads, Those who disbelieve have said, We will not believe in this Quran nor in the previous scriptures. If you can only envision these transgressors when they stand before their Lord, they will argue with one another back and forth. The followers will tell their leaders, If we're not for you, we would have been believers. The leaders will say to those who followed them, Are we the ones who diverted you from the guidance after it came to you? No, it is you who were wicked. The followers will say to the leaders, It was you who schemed night and day, then commanded us to be unappreciative of God and to set up idols to rank with Him. They will be ridden with remorse when they see the retribution, for we will place shackles around their necks of those who disbelieved. Are they not justly requited for what they did? But there's more hadith to promote and justify this heinous behavior. In case there is any doubt regarding the argument for the justification of killing believers, additional hadith were conjured that stated that it was incumbent for Muslims to kill apostates, those who revert from the religion. This gives individuals clear authority to kill anyone they deem as an apostate. So since opposing the Khalifa is a form of apostasy, then therefore this gives authority for individuals to go and slay and kill anyone who objects to the Khalifa that they support. In Sahih Muslim 1676, it reads that the Messenger said it's not permissible to take the life of a Muslim who uh, takes the Shahada, but in one of three cases, the married adulterer, the life for the life, and the deserter of his deen abandoning the community. So it's very simple to say, look, this person who's supporting another caliphate, they, in essence, are abandoning the fate, and I am justified in slaying them. In Sahih Bukhari 6922, it states that the messenger said, whoever changed his Islamic religion, then kill him. Again, this creates justification for all kinds of atrocities to allow believers to kill other believers, to think that this is what the prophet advocated for, that this is the revelation of God telling them that if someone is an apostate, someone supports the wrong caliphate, that they are justified to being slayed and you're actually doing righteous work by doing such things. And this small seed of fabricated hadith that were planted, it has derailed the Muslim ummah into believing such nonsense that is justified to kill apostates, that merely calling someone an infidel gives you the right to slay their life, that anyone who challenges the caliphate should be put to death, and they thought that these actions were righteous. Now contrast this in the Quran. The Quran tells us that there's no compulsion in religion, period. It says that oppression is worse than murder. In Surah 2 verse 190 it says, You may fight in the cause of God against those who attack you, but do not aggress God does not love the aggressors. As followers of the Quran, we have absolutely no right to ever be the aggressor in a situation. If we look at the examples in the Quran from the Prophet himself, every single battle he fought was for the sake of self-defense. It was not as the aggressor. He was being oppressed, he was being persecuted, and he stood up for his rights so he could worship God freely. 
As we saw in Surah 4 verse 93, it says, Anyone who kills a believer on purpose, his retribution is hell, wherein he abides forever. God is angry with him and condemns him and has prepared for him a terrible retribution. The following verse, so after its warning, saying anyone who kills a believer on purpose, his retribution is hell, it says, O you who believe, if you strike in the cause of God, you shall be absolutely sure. Do not say to one who offers you peace, you are not a believer, seeking the spoils of this world, for God possesses infinite spoils. Remember that you used to be like them, and God blessed you. Therefore, you shall be absolutely sure before you strike. God is fully cognizant of everything you do. God is giving forewarning. Not only is it saying like anyone who kills a believer on purpose is going to hell. It's saying if you're striking the cause of God, you have to be absolutely sure that these, the person is actually an aggressor. There's someone who's oppressing you, not just someone who has a difference of understanding or a difference in belief as you do. If we look in Surah 6, verse 52, it says, And do not dismiss those who implore their Lord day and night, devoting themselves to Him alone. You are not responsible for their reckoning, nor are they responsible for your reckoning. If you dismiss them, you will be a transgressor. So not only are you not supposed to strike, if you merely dismiss someone who implores their Lord day and night, devoting the religion to God alone, then we will be a transgressor in the eyes of God. You know, as the Quran states, the only hadith one is to uphold as a source of religious law is the Quran alone. It reads in Surah 6, verse 114 through 116, Shall I seek other than God as a source of law when he has revealed to you this book fully detailed? Those who receive the scripture recognize that it has been revealed from your Lord truthfully. You shall not harbor any doubt. The word of your Lord is complete in truth and justice. Nothing shall abrogate his words. He is the hearer, the omniscient. If you obey the majority of people on earth, they will divert you from the path of God. They follow only conjecture. They only guess. As far as I'm concerned, there is really one valid insight that we can pull from Hadith besides the Quran. And this is the glimpse into the debates and the discussions that were happening when these hadith were being compiled. A major portion of the hadith literature is not much different than the political ad campaigns that we have on TV today. Hadith were generated to push a narrative to promote or disparage the credibility or righteousness of certain people or groups of people. They are meant to push people to one understanding or another based on the desires of the people who are fabricating these narrations. And this is apparent by some of the other hadith that we cited earlier. The hadith that advocate for the killing of the apostate, for the killing of anyone who objects to the khalifa that's been nominated. That these people should be slayed. These are fabricated hadith to push a political agenda, to garner support, to fight people who are in the opposition. So this was one major viewpoint at that time. And it's only fair to show that there was another viewpoint, that there was individuals who created hadith to promote believers not to kill other believers. In Sahih Bukhari 4405, it says that the Prophet said, Do not become infidels after me by cutting the necks or the throats of one another. So in essence, don't kill one another. In Sahih Bukhari 4406, we read, it says, Beware, so this is the Prophet speaking, Do not become infidels after me, cutting the throats of one another. 
it is incumbent on those who are present to convey this message to those who are absent. Maybe that some of those whom it will be conveyed will understand it better than those who have actually heard it. So again, these are hadith that people have put together to try to convince people not to turn into these savages who are killing one another and securing their potential place in hell. So what do we do with this information? Now that we've looked at history, we've looked at the verse of the Quran, we see where the people have gone astray, what do we do with it? That within a single generation, after the death of the Prophet, the religion was vastly overtaken by the very enemies that Muhammad and the righteous believers strived and many of them gave their lives against. These people threw the Muslim Ummah into disarray, causing many civil wars and much bloodshed. Muslims today, rather than learning from history and seeing the con that took place, they continue to double down on the horrendous ideology, the ideology propagated by these liars, by these deceivers, into justifying the killing and the fighting amongst one another. This has led to perpetual infighting, some of the most heinous acts of barbarism, the destruction of reason and the full compliance to barbaric man-made dogma in the name of religion. It's time for anyone of sensibility to wake up to this ruse and go back to following the Quran alone. In the words of Mark Twain, it's easier to fool people than to convince them that they've been fooled. And the Muslim population in mass has been fooled. God willing, we're going to end here. If you want to get in touch, you can get in contact with us on the Discord server, the invite link is below. We have a thriving community of believers who want to worship God alone, who are interested in the matters of rationality and reason. If you want to follow along the verse of the Quran, please download the Quran Study app on the iOS App Store. If you don't have an iOS device, you can go to QuranStudyApp.com website. And until next time, peace and God bless.